0: It's the dawn of the 21st century and the dawn of a new millennium. And when hijacked planes crash into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001, it also becomes the dawn of a new chapter in American history. It's the chapter we're still living in right now. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post. And this is the 42nd episode of Presidential.
1: Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers. Moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder Resign the presidency, effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you, a place will live in infamy.
0: Early on in his presidency, George W. Bush used the phrase to stay the course in Iraq. And Bush got a lot of criticism for that resolute, stubborn commitment to his own decisions But in this episode, we're going to look at the places where the opposite manifested itself, that is, where Bush changed course. We'll look at the way that he defined himself differently than his father, the way that he redefined his own sense of self after confronting some of what he saw as his personal failings, the way that he tried to redefine his presidency after he saw its failings, too. And then we'll look at the way that he forever redefined the questions that America must grapple with in a new age. I have two guests this week. Later in the episode, I'm going to be talking with Peter Baker, the journalist who's chronicled Bush's presidency in more detail and more comprehensively than just about anyone out there. And first up, I'm talking with Mark Updegrove, who was on our Lyndon Johnson episode because he's the director of the LBJ Library. But... He has an expert in some other Texas politicians. He's finishing up a book on the presidencies and the lives and the relationship between George H.W. Bush and his son, George W. Bush. Mark, welcome back. And um, why don't we just start with, you know, tell me what you think are some of the most important aspects of George W.'s early life that really define him.
2: First and foremost, that he's a product of of West Texas. Uh, While George W. Bush is born in New Haven, Connecticut, while his father is attending Yale after serving in World War II, uh, he moves at a very young age to Midland, Texas, and is very much a product of that part of the world. So uh, that shapes him. That also distinguishes him from his father and mother in many respects, who were, of course, products of the Northeast. The other thing I think is that he loses his sister at a very young age. He's only six years old when his sister, uh, Robin, dies just after her third birthday. And I think that he sees the toll in particular that that takes on his parents. Uh, I think he's a great great comfort to his mother, but he sees through that experience the fragility of life. And I think he's determined Thereafter, through the course of his life, to make the most of it, he uses that phrase often. I've always tried to live life to the fullest, and his parents encouraged him to do so.
0: When you say that he's a product of Texas, what do you mean by that? What are some of the ways that that shows itself?
2: Well, I I think uh, manifestly in the swagger that we know from George W. Bush, which is very uh, Texan, very folksy, he's very no nonsense uh, I think he's very open. These are all traits of West Texas. They are definitely no-nonsense people. Laura Bush writes very eloquently about how West Texas shaped her when she was young. And she says, you know, the the landscape is so barren. There's no room for artifice. You, you uh, have to be who you are. And that's George W. Bush in a nutshell. He is who he is.
0: Um, well, I asked you this with... LBJ. And, you know, if you were to imagine that I'm going on a blind date with George W. Bush, how would you start to describe the person who I'd meet?
2: Well, I I might start with the Bush family and then talk about the fact that he went to Andover for high school and then went on to Yale uh, and then to Harvard Business School. And you might think from, from that description that you're about to meet this new england preppy but you're you're not he'd be wearing jeans and and cowboy boots he may or may not have tobacco in his cheek uh he'll be listening to country music and i think he'll be charming uh and and intelligent but you're going to be disarmed by uh the, the difference in what you thought you'd get versus what you actually get
0: In contrast to his father, George W. Bush was not really on the straight and narrow for the first mm, three or four decades of his life. His grades weren't all that great. He had a couple of small brush-ins with the law. He had kind of mixed results when he went back to Texas and worked in the oil industry. So if living life to the fullest meant being successful and having a larger impact on the world then George W. Bush hadn't quite figured that part of it out just yet.
2: I think the big change for George Bush came when he was in his 40th year and decided to stop drinking, uh, and found great comfort in spirituality. Bush drank a lot, uh, by his own admission. Uh, drinking had become a problem. He looked he looked forward to drinking every day. It became a bit of a crutch in his life. Uh, And he saw that it was getting in the way of being a a better husband and a better father. And so he resolved to put drinking behind him. And George W. Bush is extraordinarily disciplined. And he does so cold turkey uh, without uh, 12 steps, without uh, meetings in church basements.
0: But it is around the same time, right? And 1985, 1986, that he does also go through a spiritual transformation.
2: Uh, it speaks to George W. Bush's privileged life that he is really introduced to the Scripture by Billy Graham, who was a friend of his parents, and uh, he and Graham bonded during a visit. Both of them had to Kenny Bunkport uh, to visit his parents, and uh, they they talked Billy Graham and George W. Bush and. Uh, Billy Graham asked if he could send George W. Bush a Bible, which he did. And Bush began reading that Bible and took great comfort in the Scripture. I think he was compelled by the biblical uh, admonition that that has really guided his life, which is to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, And I think in so many ways tried to model his life uh, after biblical verse.
0: So it's here in his story that he pretty abruptly and bluntly confronts what he sees as his personal failings and redefines the terms of his own life. Meanwhile, his father has been serving as vice president to Ronald Reagan since 1981 and is now preparing to launch his own bid for the presidency.
2: Bush leaves West Texas, leaves the oil industry in 1987 to move to Washington, to enlist in his father's campaign. He takes on the role of being an emissary between those in the campaign and his father. His father relies on his judgment, uh, and I think that their bond is enhanced by that experience. So George W. Bush knows a lot of the players around his father when his father takes the presidency in 1989. Uh, So when his father uh, becomes president, George W. Bush goes back to Texas. He's left the oil business and becomes part owner of the Texas Rangers, uh, which becomes a very lucrative proposition for him. While he's there, though, his father asks him to come back to Washington just to take a look at his administration. It's a big honor for George W. Bush. Uh, because his father is, again, trusting his judgment to assess his administration and to make recommendations for where things can be improved. And one of the things that he does in that role is suggest to John Sununu, who was George H.W. Bush's chief of staff and wasn't quite working out, that he consider resigning. And that leads to a conversation between the elder Bush and Sununu in which uh, Sununu indeed tenders his resignation. So that's a big moment for George W. Bush. It shows that he is, has his father's full faith and
0: confidence. His father is bumped from the White House after only one term, losing reelection in 1992. But George W. Bush, only two years later, runs for his own office, the Texas governorship. This is the first time that he's run for any political office himself since about 15 years earlier when he was defeated for a congressional seat. Uh, And
2: he vows in 1978, when he runs unsuccessfully for Congress, never to be out-churched or out-countryed again. And so we see a decidedly more folksy uh, and down-to-earth George W. Bush campaigning for the governorship.
0: Um, So maybe we could talk a little bit about his time as governor. What do you think are some of the biggest lessons that he learned in that role?
2: One of the lessons I think he learns is the value of bipartisanship. He establishes a very close relationship with his lieutenant governor, Bob Bullock, who is a Democrat. Uh, and he realizes that he needs Bullock. In, In Texas, the lieutenant governor is a very powerful person, even more so in many respects than the governor because it's the lieutenant governor who sets the legislative agenda. So George W. Bush goes into that role knowing that his success is tied to Bob Bullock and they form a very close bond and get a lot done particularly in the area of education reform. So much so that when George W. Bush opts to run for president, there was great pressure, I think, for him to do so. Uh, he has the full support, publicly and otherwise, of Bob Bullock.
0: So when George W. Bush decides to run for the presidency himself, what do you think is, is driving him to want that office? And in what ways you know, was his sense of calling to the presidency different to his father's or affected by the fact that, you know, his father had held the office and served only one term?
2: I don't think it was a matter of vindication. I don't think he saw his father's one term presidency as, uh, as, as a failure that in some ways he needed to correct by becoming president himself. Uh, the, the Bushes as a family have always seen the nobility in public service. And you have George W. Bush having achieved the governorship of Texas, and he's in a position to achieve the presidency. And it's an irresistible proposition for him. Uh, in some ways, he felt like a twig in a mighty stream. There were these pressures that came to bear when his profile rose as Texas governor to become the Republican nominee. But I think it's something that George W. Bush very much wanted to do. Uh, and I think he saw the possibilities in that office from having worked with his father. I think that was, that was instructive for him. George W. Bush campaigned under the guise of being a compassionate conservative, just as his father campaigned for a kinder, gentler nation. I think that those men both saw uh, the compassion in conservatism, but the right wing of the party never quite trusted George H.W. Bush, who they regarded as sort of a Rockefeller Republican in many respects, a moderate from the Northeast. George W. Bush, on the other hand, is very much, as I mentioned earlier, a product of Texas. Uh, He understands the religious right. In some ways, he is an evangelical, and he changed as a result of that. So I think the religious right and the conservative wing of the party trusted him in a way that they didn't, his father.
0: Was there any hesitance in the country at the time to elect the son of a president. It only happened once before in history with John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Um, You know, there's a little bit of a distaste, or at least, you know, had been in America for this idea of political dynasties. Did that have any effect on the public's perception of George W. Bush?
2: I think an inverted effect, Lillian. We are not certainly a dynastic nation. But I think uh, George W. Bush was in some way appealing to the American electorate because we had rejected his father eight years earlier for a second term. But yet we had great respect for George H.W. Bush. I think in some ways you could say that George H.W. Bush is the best one term president that this, this country has ever had. And so we left. The office with an approval rating of 61%, enormously high, and I can't help but to believe that there there was a a rub-off effect for George W. Bush. Uh, He he was a brand name, essentially. And I think that was much to his advantage in the election of 2000.
0: What does his um, decision to make Dick Cheney, his vice president, tell us about Bush?
2: probably tells us that uh, he had watched his father's administration pretty carefully and wasn't afraid to draw on those who were of of service to his dad. At the same time, the appointment of Donald Rumsfeld might even say a little bit more, because while he was willing to draw on those who helped his father's administration, he was also willing to draw on those who his father pointedly did not want in his administration. George H.W. Bush and Donald Rumsfeld have been rivals earlier in their careers. But that didn't stop George W. Bush from cultivating a relationship with him and asking him to be his Secretary of Defense at a time when he believed Rumsfeld would be the best person to reorganize that department. This was, of course, before 9-11 and greater challenges. One of the things I would say is that uh, uh, many ask if George W. Bush emulated his father upon taking the presidency, and in some ways he did. But I think in a much bigger way, he emulated Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan had this grand vision for America's place in the world, this great faith. George W. Bush saw it in the same way, and I think he wanted to do something as big as Ronald Reagan had done.
0: Bush takes office in January of 2011 after an extremely tight presidential race between him and Al Gore led to a vote recount that had to be resolved by the Supreme Court. So he enters the White House on somewhat shaky ground. And then only eight months later, on September 11, 2001, two planes hijacked by terrorists crash into the Twin Towers in New York City. Another plane crashes into the Pentagon and yet another plane crashes in Pennsylvania. And suddenly, on that early fall morning, early in the presidency of George W. Bush, a new era in American history began. Remember that the Cold War had ended with his father in office, and now an entirely different global threat has risen to the surface with George W. Bush at the helm. So with me now to talk about Bush's presidency is journalist Peter Baker. He was the Washington Post's White House correspondent back then, and he is now with the New York Times in Jerusalem, which explains why the phone connection you're about to hear is pretty scratchy. But I think it's worth dealing with the crackle because Peter's book, Days of Fire, is considered the most comprehensive account yet of the Bush presidency. He interviewed about 275 people for it, not to mention that he had his own up-close view of the presidency through his reporting over those years. All right. So, Peter, thank you so much for talking with us for this episode, um, especially for a president whose story is so close to present day. I would love if you have any thoughts about a central leadership question or theme that you see kind of wind its way through different aspects and decisions of his presidency.
3: You had a president who basically came into office expecting to do one thing and then confronted with a very different set of circumstances, a different challenge that he had uh, anticipated. He wanted to be, thought he would be a domestic president. He was he had prepared for that as a governor. He had thought about education. He had thought about crime. He had thought about welfare. He had thought about issues like that. He hadn't thought about terrorism. and He hadn't thought about democracy uh, around the world. and He hadn't thought about, you know, this new era. He was he was the first president, you know, coming in uh, on the cusp of a whole new international dynamic. He didn't know it. So, you know, unprepared. Any president probably would have been unprepared on 9-11. But, uh, you know, how he chose to respond to you know, that's going to define his place in history, you know, for good or bad. I mean, Iraq, obviously, is going to be case study number one. But you have people also look at uh, the choices he made in terms of trying to keep America safe at home. We're still debating some of these things today. Uh, you know, he created, in his mind, what he was saying, he created a new architecture for a different national security era like Truman did after World War II coming into the Cold War. And uh, to some extent, you know, that continues today. Obama actually did not take his architecture apart the way I think a lot of liberals thought he might, a lot of it survived after the Bush presidency. So, you know, I guess the overarching theme is, you know, is confronting history and, and, and confronting a, a whole new era and how to redefine his own presidency and how to redefine America for this uh, for this new challenge.
0: Well, and so what do you think are the key core ways that he redefined America for a post-Cold War era?
3: He tried to find a formulation for how we should approach this new era. Uh, It wasn't the same as the Cold War. It wasn't the same as World War II. Uh, You know, everybody kept trying to find ways of of fitting this new threat into those paradigms that didn't fit. And, you know, he moved through his presidency through a a series of paradigms of his own, uh, First, obviously, is keep America safe. Second is go after terrorists wherever they were, including those who harbor them, which was a change in the way we looked at things. And finally, toward this idea of spreading democracy around the world that he articulated so powerfully in his second inaugural address, this idea that if we simply could bring popular governance to places like the Middle East, where that has never been the history, we would transform the world and make it a safer, better place, not just for ourselves, but for everyone around it. That sounded very idealistic, almost uh, Wilsonian in its uh, lofty overtones, but -hmm. it had a practical intent, which was to reduce the environment that would allow forces like al-Qaeda to come to the fore
0: maybe just to zoom in with you for a minute on Bush's leadership style and the way that he made decisions. Um, Could you describe for me what you think some of those key traits and operating styles were? And then also, you know, if there's anything that stands out to you in particular, where his leadership and decision-making style diverged from his father's?
3: Right, right. Well, of course, you know, he very much took the lessons as he saw them from his father's presidency and the way he decided to run his White House and the way he decided to frame his presidency. For starters, he didn't want a, uh, a powerful chief of staff in the way that his father had with uh, Johnson and me, uh, but he empowered instead his vice president Dick Cheney to be a particularly uh, influential force, especially in the beginning of the presidency. He, you know, on a number of big key issues, tried to avoid what he saw as his father's mistake. Uh, In other words, we're not going to make the kind of mistake his father made by breaking his read-my-lips pledge and alienating conservatives who were important to his reelection. He was going to, in fact, push through the the broadest and and deepest tax cuts the country had seen since Reagan, and he was going to make that a non-negotiable part of his agenda. Similarly, when it came to the Supreme Court, he was not going to appoint somebody that he didn't feel was going to remain a, a strong conservative on the court for years to come. David Suter had been his father's choice for Supreme Court, but turned out to be a mainstay of the liberal wing over time. George W. Bush was intent on making sure whoever he put on the court would remain ideologically consistent as the years went on. And in terms of, you know, his management style, he took a lot of his thinking about it from his experience uh, at Harvard Business School. He had a sort of MBA idea about the presidency. He wanted to be the chairman and CEO, in effect. He believed in Setting broad directions and then empowering people beneath him to figure out how to get to those goals. He believed that presidents could easily get lost in the weeds. Certainly, Bill Clinton had been a very immersed in the details kind of president. That wasn't the way George W. Bush wanted to be. So, you know, people criticized that. Obviously, they questioned whether he was, you know, involved enough in in some of those details. And certainly, there are moments in his presidency you look and say, "Well, gosh." you know, maybe a little more involvement would have helped change things. Uh, but he believed that uh, leadership is not about being the uh, the executor of policy, but to be the author of the, the, the policies.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, on the, uh, the most recent episode about Bill Clinton, David Marinus talked a bit about how, for many presidents, the traits that sort of lead to their best moments and their best decisions are also the same traits that are at the root of some of their worst decisions and worst moments in the presidency?
3: Yeah, yeah I heard him say that. I thought that was a smart point. I was
0: just going to ask um, if for Bush you see a core trait that you would say is kind of at the heart of both his brightest and darkest moments. Yeah, it's interesting
3: I think that's probably a trait for many presidents that the thing that got them there, the thing that was their strength obviously would turn out at some point to be a weakness. In George Lee Bush's case, he had great faith in his own instinct. He he liked to say that he trusted his gut. It wasn't uh, something where he had to you know spend a lot of time considering. On the one hand, this; on the other hand, that. He believed in being decisive. He called himself the decider. That was his image as a president to be a decider. And, you know, obviously that is a strength in a leader. You do want somebody who is decisive. And you saw that in the moments on top of the burned-out fire truck at Ground Zero on September 14, 2001. And he grabs the bullhorn and his sort of mm-hmm. sense of resolve and, and determination. That's a, a stirring moment, and it inspired a country for a while. I
1: can hear you. The rest of the world hears you and the people and the people who knock these buildings down will hear
3: all of us soon. But obviously the reliance on one's gut means you're also vulnerable to misjudgment. It means you're you're vulnerable to your desired outcome rather than studying history and understanding the consequences of some of the decisions you're going to make. So a good example is the way he viewed his role as commander-in-chief. The lesson he had taken from his predecessors was a president shouldn't micromanage a war. He did not want to be LBJ, pouring over maps, deciding bombing targets. He thought that was wrong. He thought you picked a good general and then you gave the general resources to do what needed to be done, but that you didn't sit there and second-guess the strategy. Well, at a certain point, the Iraq war could have used a little bit of second-guessing, right? He allowed the generals and he allowed his civilian uh administrators on the ground to make big decisions like disbanding the iraqi army like knocking out whole uh waves of of bat party members it really isn't until 2006 when the war is going so badly when people are desperate to either turn it around or get out that president bush finally kind of intervened in a more direct way it's where it takes ownership over the strategy of the war and he imposes the strategy, even over the objections of some of the generals by saying, OK, we're going to have a surge of troops and we're going to get out there in the field and we're going to rethink how we approach this war. And, you know, it, it's three years between the invasion and this decision on his part to more directly determine strategy uh, and three years that it really cost both him and uh, the country.
0: And how do you how do you start to understand the decision in the first place to invade Iraq and you know maybe just more importantly what it tells us about Bush and the way that he was thinking at the time about his role as president and right. the role of America in There's the world I to
3: think about it. a lot of people yeah i think a lot of people would like to assign a simple reason for why Bush invaded Iraq it was to finish the job his father did, or was to take revenge against Saddam Hussein, who tried to assassinate his father. You know, these obviously are thoughts that presumably were part of his, his thinking, part of his consciousness, but it was also really shaped very much by 9-11. It's important not to underestimate how much that influenced him. Uh, was he in favor of making life difficult for Saddam Hussein before 9-11? Yes. Would he have approved a policy that found some way to kind of enact regime change? Yes, probably so, but not with war. There's very little indication that he thought the country wanted to go to war before 9-11. But once the attacks have happened, he sees the world in a different light. He sees the world as a place of great danger. And people forget just how scared... The country was at that time, and inside the White House, every day, the intelligence agencies are putting on his desk these reports of all different ways people were trying to kill Americans today. And you, Mr. President, you're in charge, in effect, of stopping that from happening. And there was one thing after another that s- suggested how how dangerous the world had become. You know, some nuclear scientists. Uh, from Pakistan have been meeting with Bin Laden and there was a mm. there's these uh the anthrax attacks which we tend to forget about now. All of these things created this environment inside the White House that suggested that threats couldn't be left unaddressed. And who was one of the biggest threats in the world as far as he was concerned, it was Saddam Hussein. Now that didn't mean Saddam Hussein was directly threatening the country at that point, but he was believed to be developing weapons of mass destruction. I think that was a genuine belief, even though obviously we learned that he didn't have such weapons. And in that context, uh, the calculus change for Bush. It was no longer rational in his view to leave a guy like Hussein out there in this kind of world. So, uh, you know, we can debate that judgment today. It certainly looks different with the benefit of, of hindsight and several years on. But it's important when we evaluate why he made that decision that we put ourselves in that moment and remember the context and the influences that were uh, shaping his
0: thinking. Mm. So, um, of course, you know, much of your book, Days of Fire, is about the relationship between Bush and Cheney. And um, there was a popular narrative at the time. Among many people, there still is sort of the narrative that Bush in certain ways was a puppet who was controlled by these advisors, particularly Vice President Cheney. How much truth is there to that portrait, and
3: you what know, does that narrative I think it's get a wrong? Cartoonist version of what really happened, and what really happened actually was much more complicated and, in some ways, much more interesting. Um, no question that Cheney, in the early years of the Bush presidency, was the most influential vice president we've ever seen, and no question that Bush empowered him in ways that previous vice presidents had never been. Partly that was because he trusted Cheney, he saw in Cheney somebody who was not uh, a rival. Remember, Cheney was the first vice president in the modern era who didn't aspire to be president. Every other president, going back really to the 20s, had a vice president who you know, wanted the job he had, Mm -hmm. which automatically created a wedge of distrust or suspicion between them. That wasn't the case between Bush and Cheney. So he really could lean on Cheney in a way that no president had done in the modern times. And he needed a guy like Cheney after 9-11 because he didn't have the experience in national security that his vice president did. Having said that, what the cartoon version misses is that Cheney was operating with Bush's uh, proxy. When, When Cheney was trying to shape events, he was pushing on an open door. He wasn't pushing Bush to do things that Bush wasn't interested in doing. He actually was pretty well in tune with where his president's instincts actually lay at that point. And the other thing it misses is how it changes over time. As Bush, you know, gets his own feet planted in the presidency, as the Iraq war begins to go badly, as, as he watches into a second term, determined to get things uh, going in a better way, he moves further and further away from Vice President Cheney. They begin to have disagreements, major important disagreements on almost all of the major issues that confront the White House in the second term over what to do about Iran, what to do about North Korea, about Russia, about who to put on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. about whether to fire Don Rumsfeld, about federal spending, about climate change, about all number of things, It's the point where By the end of the second term, Cheney is a pretty marginalized figure in the White House. And the two of them end up leaving office, having this big knockdown, dragout drag-out fight over whether or not the president should pardon Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby, of course, had been Vice President Cheney's chief of staff who had been convicted in the CIA leak case for perjury and, and, and not telling the truth about his interactions with reporters. And Vice President Cheney thought it was bogus. But Bush didn't look at it that way. He was mad that Libby hadn't told the truth according to the court and that this this situation had been allowed to become such a scandal in in, in his White House. And he refused to give a pardon to Libby. And it became a real breaking point between these two men to the point where even today they're polite and deferential to each other, but they don't really speak. They're not really close. It's it's sort of a permanent uh, wedge between them. Mm.
0: And so even before that question of the pardon came up, What were some of the seeds of why their relationship started to devolve in the second term?
3: Well, I think by the second term, President Bush was sort of moving in a different direction. He wanted to repair some of the uh, damage done with the Allies in Europe and in Asia. He wanted to work on more multilateral diplomatic approaches to issues like Iran and North Korea He wanted to find ways of restructuring some of the counterterrorism programs that had been so controversial so that they would last beyond his presidency. So he went to Congress and he got Congress to buy in on the warrantless surveillance program. And he got Congress to buy in on military commissions. And he compromised. You know, we talk a lot about torture, for instance. We talk about waterboarding. Mm -hmm. Well, that really had basically stopped years before he left office. Uh, because Bush himself basically had moved away from it. He closed these secret uh, overseas CIA prisons and brought them to Guantanamo, where they at least would be accounted for and uh, part of a system. And he was doing this because he wanted to have a setup that would survive his presidency, that the next president, whether it be a Democrat or Republican, wouldn't instantly deconstruct. And that's in effect what happened. But Vice President Cheney saw that as uh, – a mistake. He saw that as moving away from the policies that he thought had been successful, that had been important toward protecting the country, and he saw them as a an unnecessary weakening of resolve that the president had gone too far toward meeting his critics.
0: Hmm. So it's interesting because you know you sort of paint a portrait there of a president who's recognizing some of the mistakes that he's made and trying to correct for them as his eight years sort of tick up. But then at the same time, for the very first crisis, September 11th, his approval ratings are very high. By the time he leaves office, they're very low. So was his leadership style evolving over that time? Or was it actually that he wasn't adapting fast enough and well enough.
3: Uh, David Frum, who was a speechwriter for Bush early on in the White House, actually has a smart point, which is that some of the bigger problems in Bush's presidency resulted from benign neglect. He wasn't uh, assertive enough in running the Iraq War, questioning the intelligence. He wasn't assertive enough in the initial response to Hurricane Katrina. He wasn't responding to any signs that might have been of an economic crisis on the horizon. But that once these things happen, he rose to the occasion. Ultimately, his decision to send the surge at the end of 2006 was one of the most daring decisions by a president against all odds, against not just the opposition party, but even his own party, and a decision that ultimately paid off by, uh, at least for a while, bringing you know, order back to Iraq.
0: And... And it's not just with the surge of troops in Iraq, right? Because similarly, in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hits the Gulf Coast and New Orleans, Bush is initially criticized for not responding quickly enough. But again, after the fact, he seems to step up his efforts.
3: He's blamed for not responding aggressively enough in the initial hours and days but he ended up going down there i think something like 15 20 times afterwards personally overseeing a recovery and pumping in tens and tens of billions of dollars to try to rebuild the gulf coast in a, in a meaningful way so that even democrats like donna brazil who ran al gore's campaign against him praise him for how he uh helped to uh restore the gulf coast and then lastly the economy
0: another example and this is the financial crisis in two thousand eight. Soon before he leaves office,
3: you know, didn't see the crisis coming. Didn't do enough to head off. But once it uh, hit the country, he responded in an aggressive and decisive way with with the you know most extraordinary seven hundred billion dollar intervention. This guy tossed aside a lifetime of conservative free market thinking in order to intervene and stop the banks from failing and stop the economy from heading over the abyss. He he himself said, hey, if this is going to be another Great Depression, I sure as hell I'm going to be FDR and not Herbert Hoover. So he had his sort of greatest moments, in effect, cleaning up some of his worst moments.
0: I heard you say once that... um that we often tell the story of our country through the lens of our leaders, which I thought was a a beautiful and insightful line. Um, And so I was curious, you know, what do you think that chapter of our country's story is that we're telling, you know, or wrestling with when we tell and wrestle with the story of George W. Bush?
3: It's a great question. And I think we we put a lot on Bush's shoulders because he was our president, he was our leader, and he made these decisions. But he, there was a lot of anger and support in the post-9-11 moment for the invasion of Iraq. And he's the one guy who doesn't get to say, well, actually, I was never for it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> Everybody else uh, running for cover and saying, uh, gosh, I really wasn't the one who was in favor of that. But he uh, he represents where our country was at that time. And... Um, Maybe we want more out of our leader than simply going the same direction that the country is going. But I think he represented this, this effort to sort of confront a new threat and to find ways of doing it that uh, challenged all of our previous understandings of where the lines were, of what the rules were and how to, how to conduct ourselves. You know, we, it wasn't a matter of simply sending a battleship and a division of soldiers. This new enemy wasn't going to be defeated in the way that uh, his father had fought World War II as a Navy aviator.
0: So there was, of course, a lot to the Bush presidency that we didn't talk about already, like his education reform initiative with No Child Left Behind, um, his multi-billion dollar efforts to fight AIDS and malaria in Africa. But as with most presidents who were in office during war and crisis, it's those huge events that really seem to be what mostly shapes their legacy. So, How do you think that Bush for himself evaluated his performance as president and the kind of legacy that he thought he would leave as he as he's exiting the White House?
3: President Bush left office hoping he would be remembered as Harry Truman, who was another president who left office under a cloud to some extent by an unresolved war and by terribly low public approval ratings, and yet today we appreciate Truman for having transitioned us from this post-World War II into the Cold War with determination and grit and a, and a philosophy for how we would fight this war that basically lasted for the next 40 years. So that's what Bush hopes he'll be looked at. Obviously, his critics have a very different view. His critics would say, no, he was a failure. He was somebody who uh made disastrous decisions. And time is the best decider of these things. And I think that... Uh, it was left to him to steer us through this new era and, and to put us on a course that would help us figure out the right response, the right balance between fear and determination. We're still struggling with them. We still argue about what we should be doing in the Middle East and how much we should be promoting democracy as opposed to stability. And we still argue about you know, how far we should go when it comes to drone strikes and interrogations and, and so forth to, make sure that the, the country is safe. All of the, uh, uh, these questions that, that challenged him and challenged the country in that time uh, are still with us. We haven't finished yet with the Bush era. We're still playing it out. And, and how we decide these issues in the coming years will help us decide what we think of uh, the Bush presidency.
0: Special thanks to this week's guests, Mark Updegrove and Peter Baker. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. We are getting so close to the final episode, and as we come to the end, I would really love to hear what all of you who've been listening to this podcast have been reflecting on about leadership and the American presidency, so if you go to WashingtonPost.com slash presidential, You'll find a phone number there, which you can call and you can leave a voicemail for me, and I'm hoping that I can, in the very final episode, highlight some of the voices and reflections of all of you who've been listening to this series. Also, a number of you have emailed me asking if there are presidential t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and uh, the answer this whole time had been no, but... Now the answer is yes, we made some. If you're interested, you can go to WashingtonPost.com presidential, and you'll find the link there for them. All right, well, enough of the announcements. Now's just the time to end the episode by saying that I cannot believe it, but next week, we'll be talking about the presidency of Barack Obama. That means we have traveled all the way from our first president, George Washington, to our first African-American president. We are basically at the end of the series, my friends. So please join me again next week.